Hey, I'm Tommy Chong. Welcome to High on Homegrown. Yes, yes, everybody, and welcome to High on Homegrown, the cannabis podcast from PersisGrowRoom.com. Now, this is a special bonus interview for you guys who have listened to the show many times before. You know that we work hard to get the very best interviews possible for you guys to listen to. And over the last couple of years of doing the show, we've interviewed legends from the cannabis world like Tommy Chung, Jorge Cervantes, Ed Rosenthal, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, Jeff Lowenfels, Dr. Peter Grinspoon, and so many others. And today we get to add another legend to this list, Graham Hancock. Now, I'm a big fan of Graham Hancock's work. He's written loads of really cool books like America Before, Fingerprints of the Gods, Magicians of the Gods, and he's been on the Joe Rogan Experience many times before, and he has also released a documentary on Netflix recently called Ancient Apocalypse. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as we enjoyed recording it, and hopefully we can get Graham back on the show in the future to talk to him some more because he's got so much I want to talk to him about. Anyway, without further ado, we won't keep you waiting any longer. Here is the interview with Graham Hancock. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll speak to you at the end of this. See you in a bit. Um, you're very persistent, sir, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, well, I'm persistent with the guests that we really want to get on the show, and I've been wanting to get you on the show for a very long time, as you can tell. So, Thank you. I'm glad to hear that, and I appreciate that you've, that you've persisted. Um, and uh, gosh, we can finally do it. Yeah, I checked the other day. Where are, you, where are you based, by the way? You're in the UK, are you? Yeah, I'm in the UK. Yeah, I'm in... and you have a co your co-host is also on the line with us. Yeah, he is yeah. Monkey. Do Monkey, you want to say hello? Hey, Graham. This is Monkey. I'm down here in the southeast US, around the Gulf of Mexico area. Okay, good to meet you online. Good to meet you too. Yeah. Yeah, we are both our illegal growers. We're not allowed to uh, grow cannabis still, unfortunately. So yeah. we have to hide behind these avatars. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you makes, know how it is. That, that, makes a, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Nobody, nobody wants to spend their lives having hassles with the police. Indeed, so indeed. Nobody's business, but our own. You know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I feel the same exact way. You know, I'm not harming anybody. What's the big deal? Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, the uh, the good thing is that at least in America, um, we are seeing this totally stupid and actually wicked and evil war on drugs legislation slowly rolled back mm -hmm. partic particularly with reference to to cannabis um and that uh, it, it, that's got to be a good thing um and while i'm very glad that canada at a government level uh, made cannabis legal uh, for adults in a way, I'm more excited by the development in America because that's individual cit citizens pushing back uh, against an obviously unjust and, and crazy system, pushing back and winning mm -hmm. uh, state by state. And, you know, this is sending a message to the rest of the world that we can take our power back into our own hands, that, it, that it's absurd, uh, that that's something that we do in the privacy of our own homes while doing no harm to others at all uh, can can in some way be be, be criminalized and I, for years I've called it the war on consciousness and that's mm -hmm. that's what it is it's a, it's 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 literally a war on consciousness yeah. we as we as adults should be able to make uh, sovereign decisions about our own consciousness so long as we do no, do no harm to others you know exactly and, uh, yeah 
Yeah, and I'm in favor of I'm in favor of of um, some some kind of sensible regulation which which hopefully keeps these substances out of the hands of children. Yes, um, because presently that is not happening. And presently, these substances are accessible to anybody under mm -hmm. the under the so-called war on drugs. Um, but I think you know there are certain privileges that that are, are right to be held back for the adult mind rather than for for the child's mind. Um, and I think it's appropriate that uh, that, that cannabis and other uh, other substances be perhaps limited to the age of 18 or 21. I'm not sure yeah. which is which is preferable. Mm -hmm. And I do believe then that you know parents could tell their children, look, this is an experience that's worth waiting for. Hold on until you reach the legal age, and then it's your decision. You know. Yeah. Um, and and I think I think many more kids would would be willing to hold hold on in that situation rather than you know getting getting some some horrible substance from some drug dealer somewhere. You know? Yeah, it is something which we've said often. It's uh, when it comes to the safety of the consumer, the government want to be involved with everything. Uh, um, they're making us children. They, they, yeah. They're making mm -hmm. us the children. Yeah. 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 It's just they seem to forget about you know like women seatbelts in cars. They make that law for the safety of the consumer and all these different regulations to keep food safe but when it yeah. comes to drugs they completely ignore it and just let the drugs go to the legacy market or the black market where drug yeah. dealers can get hold of it it's got whatever mixed into it and Absolutely. it's more dangerous when it's illegal and to keep yeah. the consumer safe we need to legalize and properly regulate these substances exactly. i think that's the, i think that's the right way to look at it right present legislation is not keeping the consumer safe mm -hmm. Um, and uh, under the disguise of doing so, it's actually doing the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's worse this way. We need to get the government to see sense. And I'm sure they do see sense, but they have some ulterior motive to yeah. keep it illegal. It's shocking. I, I, I wonder what it is. I think I think it's, it's kind of natural for governments to want to control people. Mm. Um, I, I've, I've had reason to think about this recently. And, and there, there, it seems that there are certain professions into which people with authoritarian personalities naturally gravitate <laughs> politics is one of those professions yeah but they 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 have this inner conviction that they know better than anybody else and that they can have the right to dictate to other people what to do uh you know with 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 their own minds and and, and their own bodies so i think there's a mindset at the heart of keeping cannabis illegal mm. first and foremost which is an authoritarian top-down kind of kind of mindset uh, but at the same time you know we are we are witnessing consciousness change consciousness growth in this mm -hmm. area people are more and more fighting back against that a completely ir irrational and very unhelpful system of system of laws but the states in the usa now that are legalizing psychedelics uh california i think is one of those they're making that move to yeah. legalize psilocybin which is yeah. a very good thing to see it's a very it's a very good thing to see you know, always with the proviso that we're talking about adults mm -hmm. make, making sovereign decisions about their own health and their own body. It's just none of the state's business. Exactly. Uh, the police have no role in this whatsoever. Um, I've said this often before, but, you know, we already we already have laws in every country which which govern uh, or deal with our behavior towards one another. Mm -hmm. If we are harmful to another person, we already have a law that, that uh, covers dealing with that. If we happen to be uh, on some substance when we're harmful to another person, the harm we've done to the other person is subject to the law. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we don't need is, is laws that patrol the, the inner sanctum of our own consciousness uh, and make that illegal. That's the, it's, it, I quite understand making, making negative behavior illegal, but we already have laws that do that. Mm -hmm.
we don't need these. We don't need these so-called drug laws. They're completely bogus, and they've been the cause of a great deal of unhappiness and a great deal of stupid misunderstanding over the yeah. last 50, 60 years. It's just crazy to think of how different would the world be if we wouldn't have had these stupid laws in the first place. Yeah, these laws, because again, it's the way these authoritarian personalities and governments work is they, first of all, they use our money in promotional campaigns that they mm -hmm. raise taxes to convince us that we really need them. Yeah. Uh, and one of, <laughs> and one of the, yeah, it's, a, it's incredibly, you know, barefaced cheek, you know, and, mm -hmm. and one of the ways they, they use our money to convince us that we need them is to create scare campaigns around drugs. And that's what happened with cannabis, of course, back in the 60s and 70s. The, mm. the sort of, for madness nonsense and making the public afraid and presenting the government as the only as the only possible salvation for, for humanity all complete bullshit from, yeah. from 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 beginning to end but but there they saw a way uh to inject fear into the population and to use that fear uh, to control the population and that's what they seem to want to do whether whether there's some kind of grander conspiracy behind it or not i don't know but what i do know is that they're controlling individuals who are making these decisions who are in those decision making posts because they like controlling other people and that's mm -hmm. the in my view the very last kind of person we need in government not for not, sure not sure we need government at all really well it kind of sounds like your your experiences with government sounds a lot like mine it's like my, my question to these government people is you used to be just like me all of a sudden you get elected and all of a sudden you think that you know more than me. What happened? Yes. Why? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're, they're way too overblown. And, and it's a it's a worldwide. It's a it's a global problem is the, is the negative personalities in politics mm -hmm. the, who, you know, we are foolishly entrusting with with massive decision making power. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I think. You know what's good about the issues that have been raised around the war on drugs is it's one of those it's one of those issues that have led people to think about government power and how it's exercised and what is legitimate and what is not legitimate use of uh, of government power. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, I, 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 I don't think we need government very much. I think government is the cause of much of the harm and wrong in the world today. Uh, almost all of it, actually. It seems uh, that way, doesn't it? Yeah, and government is not uh, is not being very successful in reducing or minimizing harm or or hatred or fear or suspicion. Um, so you know, what do we what do we need them for? I mean, there might be some sort of minor administrative roles which they shouldn't get massive ego boosts or huge salaries for. People should do those administrative roles out of genuine care for their community. But actually, ruling the community, telling the community what to think, making laws, putting people in prison because of experiences they have inside their own heads. I mean, mm -hmm. this is this is a, the the sort of narcissistic controlling personality of government gone mad. Madness, mm -hmm. absolute madness. Yeah. Well, you, admit, you said that you made a comment saying that you know the government talking about the truth. I think they're mm -hmm. actually in fear. You know, the government yeah. is actually feeding us fear just to control us, though. Oh, and that's, mm -hmm. You know, definitely. it's like a, the pandemic's coming. We have to worry about this. Oh, the, well, we're not yeah. we're not worried about that anymore. Oh, we got this war going on over here. We have to worry about that now. It's the worry of the day. Yeah, that's right. They keep on keep on inflicting new ones on us, mm -hmm. and it's all all about maintaining the status quo and keeping and keeping their power and how much misery and unhappiness is caused by you know keeping these grifters in their seats it's really it's just really wrong but it's a system it's not just individuals this is a this is a whole system a whole worldwide system of really shitty government that we've got right now yeah you look around the world there's no politician you can really look to and be like i, I rely on that guy i think i could trust that guy to pass the rules that would make the world a better place there is not one politician 
any... I don't see one. Yeah, exactly. I don't see a single one. It's bad. Um, it's a it's 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 a bad situation. And and so you know, this is this is where this is where and why psychedelics were made illegal for so long because mm. psychedelics psychedelics do lead people to ask questions. Mm -hmm. They're they're incredibly therapeutic and beneficial as science is now finally recognizing um, in lots of ways post-traumatic stress disorder depression um, all these all these things um, o OCD uh, behavior all of these things are helped by, by 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 psychedelics and that's being that's being recognized but I think the fear of psychedelics from government all along has been my god these substances are leading people to ask fundamental questions about the nature of reality we can't have that yep <laughs> and, and, and you know that's shut that's him up <laughs> exactly and spread fear and confusion in people's minds and and create a state of chaos and and tell false stories about what what's happening to people under under, under psychedelics and so it's it's a it's wicked wicked behavior but again you know now that the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics are being recognized this is opening the door to to a wider acceptance of these substances and because not only do they have therapeutic benefits, but also they lead us to ask questions. They're going to lead to more and more questioning about the way society is structured and about what we truly value in society today. Mm -hmm. As it should though. I mean, we, we're at a point right now where we need to start asking those questions and we Absolutely. need to ask them frequently. Yeah, you're quite right. This is, for, this is fundamental to the future of the human creature that, yeah. uh, that we don't accept the situation as it is because it's an awful situation. In That's the world. right so unnecessarily so and unfortunately graham you are very experienced with uh questioning nar the narrative and asking mm. questions and you suffered for it right i said i certainly have i mean look the, every coin has two sides you know and one mm -hmm. side one side of this one side of the coin of questioning mainstream narratives is that you have to put up with a lot of really unpleasant reaction mm. to you um and uh you know, campaigns designed to make you look like a fraud and a liar, and also you just have to you have to accept that. But the other the other side of it is the love and support and genuine, you know, caring energy that members of the public send my way. Mm -hmm. uh, so so it, the primary battles, intellectual battles that I'm I've been engaged in over the last thirty years. Well, certainly one of them is around psychedelics and a, a mm -hmm. book that I. Back in two thousand and five, called called supernatural, uh, but the other is um, is around the possibility of a lost civilization in prehistory mm -hmm. uh, during during the during the ice age, and um, this is this has been a matter that I've been investigating for for thirty years now, and I've done an enormous amount of boots on the ground research and and also flippers on my feet research. I mean, for example, I did seven years of scuba diving uh, off the continental shelves that were submerged at the end of the last ice age. My wife, Santa, is a photographer. She and I uh, would go talk to local fishermen and local divers and see if they'd seen anything interesting underwater. And then mm -hmm. we would go up. And in many, many places, we found submerged uh, structures uh, underwater, often on a very large scale. Now, what's significant about that is that the, the sea level rose 400 feet at the end of the last ice age. Um, and that means that uh, just an enormous amount of the Earth's surface that was above water during the Ice Age is underwater now. And mm. um, 
and it's one of the it's one of the places that archaeologists should be looking intensively if they had any interest at all in the possibility of a lost civilization so the the position of archaeology and i've had a lot of a lot of reaction to this because of my Netflix series, um, Ancient Apocalypse, was re which was released on the 11th of November, 2022. Uh, it happened that it was a hit series around the world. And this, yes, it uh, was. The, the this... most dangerous documentary on Netflix, I've heard, Graham. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's, what they, that's what they said. So this, so this attracts the attention of archaeologists to it, and they want to put it down in any way that they can, because I'm suggesting maybe they've got the foundations of the story of human history wrong maybe mm -hmm. they haven't they haven't got it all uh, completely completely correct um but you see i don't understand how a, a decent responsible academic discipline if that's what archaeology is can claim to be sure can claim to be certain that there was no lost civilization of any kind during the ice age mm -hmm. more than twelve thousand years ago when there's so little of the world that archaeology has actually looked at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those 27 million square kilometers of co continental shelves that were submerged at the end of the last ice age, that's Europe and China added together in terms of size. That's wow. just an enormous amount of land. And yes, there is some marine archaeology, but primarily they're looking for shipwrecks mm -hmm. from the medieval period. It's only really in the last two or three years that archaeologists have started to consider the submerged continental shelves in a way that I've been doing for, for, for more than 20 years. Um, I was I was doing my my, my first dives, uh, you know, back in the in, in the 1990s. Um, so that's one issue. Then the other issue is what about the Sahara Desert? How can archaeology claim to rule out the possibility of a lost civilization in, in, in the Ice Age when the Sahara Desert was green and fertile for long periods during the Ice Age with huge mm -hmm. rivers and lakes in it? Um, and, and has received very minimal attention from archaeologists today. Not no attention, but very, very minimal attention. That's nine million square kilometers sitting there of the Earth's surface, just really uninvestigated by, by archaeology. The Amazon rainforest, nearly six million square kilometers, still under dense canopy rainforest. Hardly any archaeology that has been done. The archaeology that has been done recently is revealing astonishing uh, earthworks and massive geometrical structures in the Amazon and uh, LIDAR uh, techniques looking, peering through the canopy without causing damage are, are, are revealing even pyramids under the Amazon and the remains of huge cities. Again, archaeology is just beginning to look at this. Yeah. And it's too early for archaeology to turn, because I have the temerity to say that I think it's possible we've lost a whole episode of the human story during mm -hmm. the ice because I have the temerity to say that. They say, no, we've absolutely proved that there was no lost civilization during the Ice Age. Well, bullshit. Yeah. They haven't proved that at all. In fact, there's so much of the world they haven't even looked at that it's just unbelievably, incredibly brass-necked and daring of them to say that they have proved it. It's a lie. They yeah, this is, I just find it shocking the way that you get treated by the academic society, You know, all these archaeologists, when essentially their proof isn't as good as anybody else's. It's just they're... They're just coming up with ideas from the evidence that they've seen and exactly. it doesn't seem any stronger than anybody else's and more research needs to be done and when they just shun you the way they do it's like oh i know it's really it's 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 a it's a really horrible thing and, and, and mm -hmm. it's partly because i knew that this was going to happen because i knew there was going to be this ferocious reaction to the to, to the series mm -hmm. um that, that i needed to make it clear to viewers right from the outset that archaeologists don't like me and they don't like my work mm -hmm. and they don't respect my work <laughs> And they call me a pseudoscientist and a pseudo and a pseudo archaeologist. I, you know, I, I laid out the ground very, very clearly. 
at the beginning of the series. But I think uh, the series is very good, Graham. I think it's excellent. And it was great to see you finally get some recognition on a big net streaming network like uh, Netflix. Is. Yeah, that was really that was really good. And again, you know, that's that's what's making the archaeologists so annoyed because if it was if it was on some smaller <laughs> platform, if it was on some smaller platform, they probably wouldn't care. Um, but here I am on a very large platform and I'm questioning their control of the narrative. Mm -hmm. That's fundamentally what it's about. It's about a particular group, a particular institution, archaeology. I'm not saying that they have a building in which they're based. They're, they're a loosely based <laughs> institution. The Ministry of Truth. The Ministry of Truth. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. And, and um, uh, you know, I'm suggesting that they, uh, they, they're not in possession of all the facts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they should not... Uh, they should not go around insulting and demeaning absolutely uh, not others mm -hmm. who wish to investigate other possibilities in the past we need to keep an open mind and that used to be fundamental to science was keeping an open mind but now they're invoking mm -hmm. science for keeping a closed mind um, and and also what i've seen is that uh, when i say they i mean archaeologists in general the society for american archaeology in particular who wrote a sort of um, open letter to Netflix demanding that my my series be reclassified as science fiction. Wow. Um, even though this even though the series is full of interviews with major highly qualified academics um, and uh, is, 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 is entirely factual. they they seem to have been behind this move. And I suspect from what I've what I've seen on social media that probably it's a handful of no more than two or three archaeologists. Who are really behind all of this witch hunt um and uh one of them at least has had a grudge against me for the best part of 30 years and has been sort of stalking my work for 30 years and he's a senior member of the society for american archaeologists and he's guest edited an issue of their journal attacking my work before so you know it's a kind of long-term campaign mm -hmm. against dressed up as dressed up as archaeologists um you know presenting their side of the story my god archaeologists get the opportunity to present their side of the story all the time mm -hmm. it's the archaeologist side of the story that we take in with our mother's milk from childhood that's taught to us in every school and every university as we go through the education system it's not alternative views of the past that are being taught in schools and universities it's the absolute mainstream archaeological view of the past that's being, mm -hmm. that's being taught there majority of media uh, that reports um, stories about prehistory bases those stories entirely upon the archaeological point of view. You know, so I, 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 the way I look at it, I'm, I'm just trying to provide an alternative point of view to, to provide people who think for themselves with ammunition and evidence to take this inquiry even further than I've been able to take it. And over you, the years which you've been doing this as well, you're just getting more and more evidence come up to support your claims. You. This is what seems to be. This is what seems to be happening. Everything keeps getting older, Graham. Yes, <laughs> stuff just keeps on getting older. Mm -hmm. See, if I go back to 1995 when I published *Fingerprints of the Gods*, which is probably my best-known book, published in 1995, really written between 1992 and 1994, um, it it was very clear to me when I wrote that book largely from myths and traditions all around the world, uh, but also from specific astronomical symbolism that was used in particular by the ancient Egyptians, but also by others, um, which points to a global cataclysm of some kind 
around 12,500 years ago, around 10,500 BC, give or take 100 years. Um, and, and I put that date in Fingerprints of the Gods back in 1995, but I didn't really know what the cataclysm was. Uh, and I explored a number of possibilities. The one that struck me as most plausible at the time was a theory called earth crust displacement. Um, but earth crust displacement, because it's a radical catastrophist theory, has come in for an enormous amount of criticism um, from the scientific establishment. It's a very hot potato. Um, and what then happened was that in 2006, evidence started to be published of indeed, and this is published in mainstream scientific journals, including the Nature Group, uh, started to be published, which showed that there indeed had been a global cataclysm around 12,500 years ago. They put it at 12,800 years ago, give or take, mm -hmm. you know, 100 years. Um, and that the, the cause of this cataclysm was, was almost certainly that the Earth in its orbit ran into the debris stream of a fragmenting comet, of a very large fragmenting comet. Comets always fragment. It's characteristic of all comets. And the, the, the hypothesis is that bits of a fragmented comet uh, hit the Earth 12,800 years ago and initiated a, just a period of unbelievably wild and horrific climate called the Younger Dryas. Nobody doubts the Younger Dryas occurred. Mm -hmm. it, the question is more what, what caused it to occur. Uh, and I find the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis uh, particularly convincing. Of course, it's come in for opposition, and I report that in my books. But it's a mainstream scientific hypothesis, and it's going through the works, and it's gradually, gradually attracting more and more adherence. We now have more than 100 scientists, major scientists, who are proposing uh, the impact hypothesis as the explanation for the Younger Dryas 12,800 years ago and the mass worldwide extinction of animal species that took place at that time and evidence for a sudden bottleneck a collapse of human populations at that time something really bad happened and the evidence that it was um, uh, a comet swarm uh, is compelling in my view and i presented that evidence in great detail in magicians of the gods in 2015 and in america before in 2019 and it's why the netflix series is called ancient apocalypse because mm -hmm. this this episode and it is an episode, it's not a moment. It, it begins 12,800 years ago with a cataclysm and it ends 11,600 years ago with another cataclysm. In both occasions, sea levels rise uh, remarkably and in both occasions, there's radical sudden climate, climate change. So it's an episode of about 1,200 years of utter chaos uh, on, 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 on the earth. And it seems to me um, the, most likely, uh, the most likely explanation for why there has been mm. a forgotten in human history. And, and again, the critics of my work very rarely pay any attention to the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis. It's like, oh, we don't want to go there um, because the evidence is becoming more and more overwhelming uh, that we did suffer a series of impact events uh, in that precise period and that it changed the world completely. It just seems to make sense. I mean, I'm not a scientist in, in uh, any way. Well, I suppose in a little way. I am. I enjoy science. But it yeah. just—it seems as if your theory about the uh, the impacts of twelve thousand six hundred years ago just seems to make the most sense. It seems to. That's clear. It's not my theory. I'm I'm a, I'm okay. a journalist. I'm yeah, reporting. That's another thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reporting the theory of mm -hmm. a, a very substantial, very highly qualified group of scientists. Mm -hmm. um, 
who, who, who have amassed just an enormous quantity of information on this, which has been published in the best peer-reviewed journals uh, all around the world. This is the coming thing, the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis mm -hmm, for this great uh, mystery uh, in the past. And it's mystery that drives me in this inquiry more than anything else. The, the, one of the things that I find annoying about archaeology, although they'll say, oh, well, we don't know everything yet. In practice, they behave as though they do know everything yeah. yet. Mm -hmm. And they behave as though their mission is to kind of suck all of the mystery out of the past, like a vampire drains its victim of blood, you know, just to remove all the mystery from the past and leave this kind of dry, boring husk behind. That's the other side of the authoritarian personalities that get themselves into archaeology, is that they appear to want to make the world as boring as they possibly can. And they'll throw out their arms in horror and say, no, no, we don't want to make it boring. We're very excited by archaeology. Well, I don't agree. Uh, I, I don't agree, but I would I'd like to say a couple of points about archaeologists. And the first and most important point to state is absolutely I couldn't do anything I do without the work that archaeologists do. Mm -hmm. um, I, would, I would not be in a position to do any of the analysis that I do. Archaeology is about the interpretation of evidence from the past. And by and large, I am working with evidence that archaeologists themselves have already acknowledged and put forward. Mm -hmm. However, they're interpreting it in a completely different way from me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's useful uh, to offer an alternative explanation uh, of these uh, so-called facts about the past. And it becomes more and more useful the further and further back we go into the past. So I'm happy to say that for, for the last four and a half to 5,000 years, the story of the past that archaeology tells us uh, is probably pretty accurate. There's, there's errors, of course, uh, as there is in any great enterprise. But what I call the house of history that archaeology has built from the, pr roughly the last 5,000 years is a pretty solid construction. Unfortunately, it stands on dangerously unsound foundations. Hmm. And, those, and those are the, the problems with getting to grips with prehistory. And prehistory can be simply defined really as that time from which no written documents have survived. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. History is the time from which written documents have survived. And obviously, when written documents survive, although we must consider frauds and forgeries and other such things, when written documents survive, it's easier to get a clear picture of what was going on in the past than, than when you're dealing only with objects and often scarce objects uh, extracted from you know, very limited parts of the Earth's surface. And so the analysis of prehistory that archaeology gives us is based on its interpretation of objects that have been dug up uh, in various places around the world. And as I explained earlier, for that to be taken as sufficient to rule out the possibility of a lost civilization during the Ice Age is just really irresponsible of archaeology, and uh, they should rethink that whole attitude. Mm -hmm. It's all very fascinating. I've, I've listened to so much of your stuff. I've listened to the Joe Rogan episode you've done numerous yeah. times. I always enjoy doing doing Joe's show. And, mm -hmm. uh, and at Joe's invitation, um, we're going to be doing a debate on his oh, show. Oh, yeah, I saw you put an update on Twitter. Yeah. In October, um, I had wanted to interview a character called John Hoops, uh, who's an archaeology at the archaeologist at the University of Kansas. Um, he's been insulting and smearing my work for decades. Uh, he was particularly involved in, in issuing all kinds of insulting 
defamatory smears about uh, the my, my Netflix my Netflix series. Um, he attacked me directly, claimed that I was uh, responsible for spreading racism and white supremacism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. so I find this I find this very painful to hear. It's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's stupid, but it's painful to hear. Yeah, I'm, sure. married, I'm married to a woman of color. I have I have four mixed race children, and I have seven mixed race grandchildren. And uh, it, it, for somebody lyingly to say that I'm spreading racism and white supremacism is personally hurtful to me. It's dangerous uh, too. It's it's bloody dangerous. Yes. Mm. So I thought I thought well, here's the archaeologist I want to debate on the Joe Rogan experience. Okay. Let's, let's sit down opposite each other and uh, talk about all these issues for three hours. Mm -hmm. uh, and if John Hoops has got anything useful to say at all, that's his big opportunity. And it's in front of tens of millions of people. Yeah, this um, should be pay-per-view, Graham. That's going to be epic. <laughs> but unfortunately John, Hoops, unfortunately, John Hoops is an intellectual tablet, mm -hmm. and he declined. Uh, oh, to, wow, he's not doing it. He declined to debate me. However, another one stepped forward to shelter him, uh, and that's a, an, an archaeologist from Britain, uh, Flint Dibble from the University of Cardiff, uh, who has been almost as insulting and unpleasant to me as John Hoops, although not quite. Um, and uh, he said that he would take Hoops' place, presumably to save Hoops' face and to save the face, <laughs> of, save the face of archaeology in general. Having been challenged to a debate and having um, not having the courage to do that debate, at least Flint Dibble does have the courage to do it. Uh, and he and I will will meet uh, in Joe's studio in Austin sometime in October, uh, still to be confirmed, and we will have a three-hour uh, debate. Nice. Uh, That's just um, shocking how jo John Hooper, he's willing to say all this stuff about you behind your back, but he's not willing to sit there and have an actual discussion with you. It's, a, it's appalling. It's shameful mm -hmm. for archaeology that they allow such people to behave like that, to, mm -hmm. to smear and damage the reputations of others. I yeah. recall I recall back in the 20, 2015, 2014 sort of period, how my dear friend John John Major Jenkins, who was, was a great alternative authority on the ancient Maya, um, how his life was ruined, how he was plunged into a terrible depression by the by the very cruel comments that John Hoops and others around him were making about John Major Jenkins' work, the personal attacks on John Major Jenkins. And although I can't prove it, the fact that John Major Jenkins died of cancer in 2017, I believe had a lot to do with the corrosive effects of those those wicked and dishonest attacks that were made on his work. That's shocking. You know, it's unacceptable. So you know, there's nothing wrong with anybody asking questions, and especially when they could present evidence to support yes. them as well. It's... Yeah. And it's welcome, you know, because mm -hmm. it helps all of us to up our game. Exactly. When, yeah. it becomes, when it becomes this personalized onslaught, when it becomes, you know, a direct attack on the integrity and decency of a fellow human being with no evidence, mm -hmm. no evidence, then we're entering a new a new area whatsoever. And I think archaeology has to take responsibility for the behavior of some of its members yeah. uh, in this regard. And that's why I wanted to debate John Hoops face to face, because I believe he deserves to be called to account yes, for, his, for, sure. for his irresponsible behavior. But of course, he's weaseled out of it, as cowards always do. It's, it's shocking, man, how we can just get away with that. Yeah, so, well, you know, and, and to, to me, it's shocking how fellow archaeologists continue to support him. And as I say, one of them has one of them has put himself in his place so that he'll do the debate instead of instead of John Hoops. So not only have a, a dishonest coward in their ranks, but uh, they're willing to protect him as well. 
But you seem to be gathering a massive following behind you know with lots of people who support your work and everything that you've done so maybe they'll uh try and encourage john hoot to step out of the shadows and come and stand behind the things he says yeah no i don't i don't think he i don't think he ever he ever will actually it's settled now i'm going to i'm going to debate uh flint dibble Mm-hmm. Uh, but I regard I regard John Hoops and anything that he has to say about prehistory and about the lost civilization issue. Uh, I regard him of, as being completely unworthy of a hearing because he's pre- proved himself to be unworthy by being unwilling to step up and do this debate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've been in this game for a long time now, right? Uh, this yeah, I'm started old, uh, in Ethiopia. I'm an old man now. I'm an old man now. <laughs> and you don't see me. I mean, you said you're 72, 73. I'm, I'm 72, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I'm 72, but young at heart. Yeah, definitely. And you look much younger than 72. You know, well, you look good for your age. Thank you. I've been I've been privileged to 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 stay reasonably fit and and had lots of adventurous travels that have, that have kept me on my toes. Yes, I've been I've been in this for a long time. I, I it, it goes back to the the writing goes back really to my childhood and to my teens, poetry and songs that I was writing back in my teens. Um, And then journalism uh, in the 70s um, and uh, a particular focus on an interest in Africa. Uh, And I became the East Africa correspondent for The Economist based in Nairobi in Kenya and reported uh, neighboring countries as well as Kenya, notably uh, Ethiopia. Mm Um, and uh, it was there that I came across the first sort of whiff of a, of a mystery that I was interested in investigating, and that was Ethiopia's, uh, I mean, a historical mystery, because previously I'd been entirely about current affairs, and that was Ethiopia's claim to possess the lost Ark of the Covenant. But before that, in 1981, I had been asked by a great photographer, Mohammed Amin, uh, in Nairobi, uh, to write the text for a big photographic book on Pakistan that he was putting together. And actually my first ever book published in 1981 um, was Journey Through Pakistan with photography by Muhammad Amin and uh, Duncan Willits. Muhammad was a great man. Un- unfortunately, he was killed in the Ethiopian Airlines hijack in 1996. Damn. Um, but he was a huge influence on my on my life. And um, he, thanks to him, I was able to do my first book, which was a travel book about Pakistan. That's when I discovered that um, I so much preferred writing at book length rather than writing uh, little articles for The Economist. You know, you're lucky if you get 300 words in The Economist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked writing books, so I started writing more, but they were all on current affairs issues through the 80s. Uh, but it was in the 80s that I that I came across this Ethiopian claim to possess the Ark of the Covenant, and I slowly, on the back burner, began to investigate it. And the more I looked into it, the more skeptical I became, not of the Ethiopian claim, but of the way that archaeologists dismissed that claim, mm-hmm. uh, with almost sneering, patronizing remarks that it was just something the Ethiopians made up, and yet there it was, central to Ethiopian culture, a specific location in which this object is supposedly kept, mm-hmm. uh, replicas of it in every single church in Ethiopia, more than 20,000 churches. Uh, clearly, it's very, very major part of Ethiopian culture, um, and the, the mystery is it's a Ethiopian c- culture that's celebrating the Ark of the Covenant is Christian, but the Ark of the Covenant is a pre-Christian Relic, and I, the more I began to look into it, then I discovered that there was an in, uh, indigenous community of Ethiopian Jews who'd been in, in Ethiopia for thousands of years, the Falashas, 
the more I spread the investigation, the more obviously it became to me that there was something to this story. Um, and so it was an investigation. I'd been doing investigative journalism before. Now I was doing investigation into a historical mystery. And, and after writing The Sign and the Seal and, and you know, Santa and I had an incredibly adventurous journey at the end of it from the, from the Sudan, across the Sudan, into Eritrea, being strafed by government aircraft at the time because there was a civil war going on, uh, driving at night um, and hiding under trees during the day. Uh, five days from Sudan into Eritrea, then into Tigray province, and finally to Aksum, where they claimed to keep the, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it, was, um, it was a remarkable experience, and it set me on the path uh, to writing all the subsequent books that I've written, and particularly the focus on a lost civilization of prehistory. The next book after that was Fingerprints of the Gods, which was published in 1995. Mm -hmm. You've been on so many journeys. It's like you hear about all these archaeologists, and I wonder if many of them have traveled as much as you have. You know, you've seen oh, all I, these great places. Yeah, I, I doubt it. I doubt if they if they have. And again, I, I just have to say that I'm I'm very privileged to have to have this opportunity. Mm -hmm. When I wrote the sign and the seal, and when I wrote fingerprints of the gods, um, I was totally one million percent broke. I was <laughs> penniless. I borrowed everything I could remortgaged my house three, four times, was deeply in negative equity, just to fund my research. Uh, and and with that, with that borrowed, borrowed money, I was able to do the research that I did for Fingerprints of the Gods. Um, Fingerprints of the Gods, I'm very grateful to my readers and to the universe, thank you. It was a huge international bestseller. Mm -hmm. uh, and since then, because my readers buy and read my books, I've had the funds I need to do my own research without having to borrow money from banks and punitive rates of interest and uh, without owing anybody anything i you know i i'm i'm being freed by my readers to do these mm -hmm. investigations and i'm very grateful to my readers for that and I, that's a privilege i have that most archaeologists don't have mm -hmm. they may have corporate funding for what they do they may have funding through the through the universities but but uh, so i'm not blaming them entirely for maybe not traveling as much as i have i've had more opportunity to travel yeah, one of the one of the cool stories, one of the many cool stories I've heard from you is you were visiting the pyramids of Egypt for one of the occasions, and you you said on the south side, two steps down, you found your grandparents' signature, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. My 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 <laughs> grandfather Philip Philip Hancock. It was um it was something that required some investigation because of course it might be somebody else called Philip Hancock. Mm -hmm. um, P. Hancock, and I think the date was 5th of April, 1916. The top of the Great Pyramid is covered with uh, graffiti. Um, very few people get the opportunity to go up there. But when you do, you find that people have been going up there for centuries. Mm. And there's graffiti, you know, just going back endlessly uh, into, into the past. Wow. Um, there's so much of it on the top that it's it's quite a mission to identify any one particular bit of it. But I, mm -hmm. I was just, I was up there. Santa was taking some photographs. I was on the south side. They used to have a, a what they call the boat museum down at ground level underneath that. <coughs> I was looking down at that and I saw this name, P. Hancock. And I thought, could that, could that possibly be my granddad, Philip Hancock, the date in 1916? Um, and, and what happened was when, when uh, we got back to the UK, my own father was still alive at that time and he had my grandfather's diaries. And those diaries were very, I remember them distinctly, they were very small, um, about not much bigger than, than 
smaller than the palm of your hand, little mm -hmm. thing. And he'd mm -hmm. written them in very, very close, tight writing. And on the date that he that, that that graffiti was inscribed on the Great Pyramid, he had written "Climbed Great Pyramid Today." Wow. <laughs> and wow. And, he, and he was in Egypt as part of. He was a chaplain with British forces who were in Egypt at that time during the First World War. So you can imagine that sent a bit of a shiver down my back when oh, I for sure such a coincidence is it's crazy it's amazing, amazing coincidence first of all that I saw it at all and secondly that it turned out to be my granddad um, he was uh, he was a great adventurer he was uh, in his own way uh, all over the place I, I didn't share his Christian views but um, uh, he um, went my my father was born in in Iran in Persia as it was then called. Um, because my grandfather was, was was a Christian missionary in Iran uh, or Persia. Apparently, it entirely failed. He didn't manage to convert anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, that's, a, that's a, the kind of kind of sort of background that I that I had there. And he came from very much a, a working family. He 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 started out his life uh, working in a foundry, carrying sheets of hot metal. My grandfather, um, and um, as a, as a teenager. But he showed promise, and he was he was sent on a scholarship to America by some Bible school, and that's how uh, he ended up. Um, <laughs> that's ultimately how he ended up climbing the Great Pyramid. Um, so yeah, there's a there, there's been a bit of tradition of adventure and and exploration in my family. I was I spent four years of my childhood in India. My father, who I mentioned, was very Christian in his outlook. Uh, wanted after he became a, a surgeon, wanted to put his gifts uh, in the mission field, and so he was. He was out at a place called the Christian Medical College in Velour in South India, uh, where I was as a child from the age of four uh, to the age of 11. Um, of course, it would later come as a huge disappointment to my father that I became an atheist uh, and that I couldn't accept um, religious dogma uh, in any shape or form. And I would say I would say for many decades into my 30s, 20s and 30s, I, I was an absolutely stone cold atheist. I, yeah. and, Let's use that word in its true meaning, which means without God. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just felt without everything. I felt everything. It was this classic materialist reductionism that I fell into at that time. And it wasn't until it wasn't until I started to have profound experiences with psychedelics, and that wasn't really until 2003 that I began that I began to realize that it's possible to be an atheist and not believe in the guy with the beard sitting up on the clouds, uh, but also to recognize that the universe is filled with spirit and that spirit is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. There you go. This is what it's all about, that, that death is not the end, that, that uh, I, I believe strongly in reincarnation. I, 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 I believe strongly that the physical body is just a temporary container uh, for, for, for consciousness and that we're here to learn and to grow and to develop. So I have deeply mystical spiritual beliefs um, which followed, which really began to take shape. I'm not saying that we're absent before because I'd started, I'd started to think along those lines in the 90s when I first became exposed to the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead and mm. the Pyramids. You know, the ancient Egyptians put their best minds to work for 3,000 years on the mystery of death. And mm -hmm. looking at some of their material, I began to think, wow, you know, maybe I need to re-examine my beliefs. <laughs> and, then, and then I went to the Amazon and drank ayahuasca. And Ooh. boy, goodness, I had to re-examine my beliefs in a very, very, very big way. Um, and and uh, since then, I've continued to work with, with psychedelics. Um, 
prefer to do so in, in uh, a place like Brazil, where it's a central part of the culture. It's great to go to the Amazon um, and uh, drink ayahuasca there, but it's, um, it's very hard work. You know, oh you yeah, to, it looks to, like it. <laughs> you have to confront your own baggage. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to deal with, you know, the piece of shit that you've been over the years. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. You're shown all the truth about that. Um, so it's not something that anybody's doing for recreational purposes. Plus, mm -hmm. there's all vomiting and the diarrhea. You know, it's something. It's something that that is worthy of doing because it helps us to understand ourselves better. And yeah. it's not. It's not a magic pill. Um, there's no point in all the insights that ayahuasca or psilocybin or DMT can give us. There's no point in all those insights if we actually don't do anything about them afterwards. Mm. So that's when the hard work begins, in my view. Yeah. I'm pretty much the same as you, well, uh, same as you were, because yeah. I am a militant atheist. Well, I'm not so much of a militant atheist anymore. I've calmed down. But a stone-cold atheist, definitely. I don't believe yeah. in any kind of uh, structured religion. And, yeah. But I, I feel as if uh, to do some kind of psychedelic, psychedelic experience like DMT or ayahuasca would give me a spiritual experience that I haven't had before. And it might show me not, that there is not, more to this. You've not had the opportunity to, to do a major psychedelic yet? No, well, I do mushrooms. I have some mushrooms. I, I take them sometimes for fun. But, you know, you need to take one of those heroic doses to really get you the kind of spiritual be, experience. Yeah, I find that with mushrooms. You do need to take you do need to take a big dose. Mm -hmm. um, and they taste so bad. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard this so many times. So it's important. The setting is important. Mm -hmm. This is why this is why go, going back to ancient shamanic traditions that surround the use of these medicines. Uh, is is important because because ancient cultures had this worked out in a way that we we don't. I've seen some incredibly irresponsible ayahuasca sessions taking place in London, for example, mm. where there's more, where there's more than a hundred people in the room, and where the so-called shaman is basically a drug dealer just in it for the money. Lame. Um, you know, this stuff is being this stuff is being abused, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And the setting is the setting is very important, and anybody going into serious psychedelic work needs to understand that it's a very serious matter it's mm -hmm. not not a light matter it's not to be disrespected no but uh, definitely not to be disrespected no but then mm -hmm. we come to the mystery of you know universally reported that that uh, people experience encounters with entities uh, under these substances it's particularly true of the study that's being done at imperial college in london right now with uh, dmt and human volunteers mm -hmm. and, and the remarkable consistency uh, that they report of encounters with entities and describing the entities and describing the space in which they're encountered and the teachings that they deliver um, is uh, shaking the materialist foundations of psychology, you know, and, and the, the question is legitimately being raised. It's a question I've, I've raised many times in the past as well is, you know, is consciousness made in the brain or is brain merely a vehicle through which consciousness passes? yeah um uh, the receiver which, it's the receiver model in which mm -hmm. case those those experiences i mean any other realm of life where multiple people report the same types of encounters and the same sorts of experiences we would say well that sounds real you know and and that's what's emerging from the dmt research that in some way we're dealing with what may be real parallel dimensions which interact with ours um and, and uh, which have had beneficial effects on the human story over the millennia but also have had some very negative effects too mm -hmm. it seems scary but i think it's supposed to be scary for a reason 
Yeah, it's supposed to be scary. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be scary. The, the, these things, these things um, are scary. <laughs> and how many times have you done ayahuasca, Brian? About seventy-five. What, bro? <laughs> mm. <laughs> but, uh, the I last time was in, the last time was in Costa Rica in twenty nineteen, and then of course we had COVID, and I had a I had a mm. TV to make. But but uh, <laughs> I will I will I, I liked uh, my practice was to have five ayahuasca sessions a year uh, in a place where ayahuasca is legal and mm -hmm. there's no hassle. Um, and I've not done since 2019, but uh, perhaps sometime this year I'll get the opportunity. I'm hoping to get get back to the Amazon this year as well. That would the be Amazon, awesome. The Amazon is an amazing place. Oh, I bet yeah. Just incredible. It's 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 alive. It's filled with intelligence. The what what the ancient inhabitants of the Amazon achieved and what they did. You know, I pointed this out before, but ayahuasca itself is a kind of miracle. Mm -hmm. Because of because it in, involves the mixture of two plants, neither of which is psychoactive in its own right. Um, they're only psychoactive when they're put together. And when you consider the number of plants and trees in the Amazon, <laughs> to put those two those two ingredients together um, is quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. so it feels like, like science. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a good experience. So I'd love to do it one day. Definitely. Yeah, really worth really worth 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 doing, and really worth going to the indigenous setting to, mm -hmm. to to do it in. That's that's what I would recommend. So, with your Netflix documentary, will there be a season two? I can't know that. That's oh. entirely that's entirely in Netflix's hands. Um, neither I, as a presenter, nor the production company have any say over that. It's entirely Netflix's call. Um, obviously, I hope uh, that there will be. So do I. Yeah, I'm sure many other people do as well because it was massively popular. Yeah, it was. It was, and and you know, I I very much hope it's going to it's going to happen. But but um, it's a matter in which Netflix are 100 percent in control. Um, so I'll just keep my fingers crossed and uh, hope we get a second season. <laughs> do you have any ideas for what the second season would be about? That I won't go into because oh. because it's a bit surprising. <laughs> We've already. <laughs> We've already proposed those ideas, so, mm -hmm. so definitely respect that. Yes, yeah, sure. Yes. So, what's next for Graham Hancock? Why, why is what do you have planned? You have some new books planned. Well, you see, this is the thing: making making TV series is very, very time consuming. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's a great way to communicate ideas, and that's all I'm trying to do with my books: is communicate ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, if the universe allows, if, if, if Netflix do want to go ahead with a second season, then I'll be very committed to that. Um, and I'll put uh, all my time into it uh, until uh, it's ready to be ready to be screened, which means I won't be writing any books. Yeah, um, it takes a lot that, of time. If, mm -hmm. if that happens. Um, and right now I'm in a position where I just don't know. Um, the, the, other, the other thing that interests me is longer term, whether it's now or sometime in the future. I... I'm not sure whether I'm going to write any more big non-fiction books like Fingerprints of the Gods, mm -hmm. like Mission of the Gods, like America Before, uh, like Supernatural. I'm not sure I'm going to write any more big books like that. Uh, a big book like America Before with thousands of footnotes, very detailed investigation. It's a massive project to take on. Mm -hmm. um, and my policy has been that I won't write books about this area again unless there are significant new discoveries that that require me to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So, so 
absent any major new discoveries of the Gobekli Tepe level, you know that kind of that kind of thing, which which changes everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I may not write another nonfiction book. We shall we shall see. In which case, uh, I, I also like writing novels. Um, none of my readers ever buy my novels, but I've um, I've. You have I've, a book called Entangled. Is that what it's called? Entangled, 2007, and then mm-hmm. after that, I wrote three novels about the Spanish conquest of Mexico. A, 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 a three out of four fourth volume is still to be completed that's because the the non-fiction work has come back on you know there's been so much to say on the non-fiction side mm-hmm. uh, since i completed the third volume of war god that i've just not been able to to get back to it um and um i just feel very i feel very lucky i feel very privileged to, to lead the life i live but i'm also tired i'm not getting any younger um and uh, you know sometimes it's really nice to be at home mm-hmm. yeah for sure I suppose you don't get to spend much time at home. You've been traveling a lot for the last couple constantly, of years. Constantly. And that's the that's the story of our lives. When I say our, I mean myself and, and my wife, Santa. Um, mm-hmm. when, when we became a, a couple back around 1990, uh, Santa's a photographer, uh, we made a decision that we would always travel together. Uh, and that if it were not possible to travel together, then we wouldn't travel on that trip at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been, we've been entirely together. Um, uh, since since 1990, 1991. That's awesome. We've Respect made all our, thank you. We've made all our trips and journeys together, uh, and uh, and will continue to do so. Uh, but of course, it's nice it's nice to be at home and you know put our feet up and back in the homeland. You know? Yeah, exactly. But mm-hmm. I but I repeat, the travel is a the travel is a, is is a privilege. I feel very lucky to have done it I've, all my life. Mm-hmm decades when I was broken for decades since I wasn't broke I've uh, <laughs> had the opportunity to travel and to explore the world and meet people from different cultures and hear their stories and understand that people all over the world regardless of their nationality regardless of their ethnicity regardless of their gender we're all the same human mm-hmm. beings are all the same everywhere we're all we're all one family and again it's these controlling mentalities running governments that are seeking to divide us against one another uh, and, and, and spread hatred and fear and and, and, and confusion about, about other groups of people. The least important thing, in my view, about a human being, the very least important thing is the color of that person's skin. Mm-hmm. What a ridiculous thing mm-hmm. to qualify another human being on. Absolutely. And the, and the parallel I make is, you know, the skin is a large physical organ, yes. But let's take another large physical organ. Let's take the colon, for example. <laughs> the colon is a large physical organ. And are we suddenly going to divide ourselves at, up into tribes based on the length of our colons? That we feel especially, <laughs> we feel especially connected to somebody whose colon is the same length as ours? Of course, it's an absurd idea, and it's an equally absurd idea about skin color. But it's 2023, you know, there's lots of absurd ideas that seem to be gaining ground nowadays. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully we're going to grow out of it. You know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. the beauty of, of, of the human creature. Um, and yes, we're very diverse. I'm, I welcome diverse cultures. Uh, but what I don't welcome is this attitude of, of one person saying that his culture is better than somebody else's. Mm-hmm. No, we don't need that. It's the it's diversity. arrogance, yeah. No arrogance. It's the diversity of human culture that is that is our fundamental survival mechanism as a species, right. because we can do all kinds of different things in all kinds of different ways and all kinds of different environments. And I celebrate that diversity. And human cultures all all over the world have produced just incredible, incredible beauty and truth in myths and tradition and in art and in architecture and in sculpture. Mm-hmm. 
Stronger together, always. Always stronger together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this is where psychedelics, again, are going to have, have an important role. We just have to lighten up as a civilization and explore the beauty and the potential uh, of, of, of the human creature instead of being so dominating and punishing as our societies mm -hmm. are. And so close-minded, you know? So close-minded, so close-minded. It's most, it's most unfortunate we have these huge brains. Universe has gifted us with these gigantic brains and an amazing planet to live on, and we keep fucking it up, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's it. I think things will get better eventually. And as, as you say, the more and more countries are legalizing psychedelics and yeah. just becoming more wiser and more in touch with nature. And hopefully exactly. we can keep heading in that direction. Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, then, then let's come back to the fact we're, we're talking about plant medicines here. This is the mm -hmm. plant. This is the plant verse talking to us. We are being communicated to by nature. And the message of nature is very, very clear. We have to change our behavior. Mm -hmm. We're part of nature too. Nature has a right to talk to us and it does so through psychedelics. And uh, anybody who denies that, that something's going on there has not had the psychedelic experience. Yeah, nature is telling us right now that we're making mistakes that we need to fix and we need to fix these now. You bet, you bet. Mm -hmm. It's an urgent universal message. Incredible. Uh, we, we have kept you for a whole hour now, Graham. Uh, I yeah, know, I, I know you're very busy. <laughs> I am afraid. I'm afraid to say I am very ridiculously busy, but I very much enjoyed talking to you guys. Oh, no, oh, very, we've very much enjoyed here. talking to you, man. And, you know, I, I will say again, but I'm a massive fan of all of your work and I Thank really you. do appreciate you taking the time out to come and talk to us. That's, that's, that's a pleasure. I'm sorry it took so long. Oh, no, and no, maybe, I, it's completely fine. Don't worry about it. Maybe we can have another conversation later in the year about some of the things I talked to you about. So. Oh, that would that would be awesome. The seat is always open for you, Graham. Whenever you have some free time, you want to come and talk to us and relax. Yeah, you're always means. welcome. Always welcome. Yeah. Good stuff. Send me a link when you put the show out. Oh, we'll do. We'll do. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you so Thank much, you, Graham. You take care, man, and we'll, we'll speak soon. Hopefully, speak soon. Be well. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye. Your time. Thank you so much. Bye now. there we go everybody that was graham hancock and at the end there you heard him say that he might be back in the future which would be epic if this is the first time you've heard of graham then make sure you go out to the internet and search for him there's loads of stuff out there about graham hancock you know the episodes of joe rogan buy some of his books definitely check out his documentary on netflix ancient apocalypse there's just a lot of work out there on the internet for you to go and check out which is from graham hancock and it's all very interesting stuff it's all fascinating so if you enjoyed this episode, you'll definitely enjoy all of that stuff. But anyway, it's been a pleasure as usual. Thank you for downloading and listening to the show. It would be epic if you could leave a review for us on iTunes or Spotify or whatever network you use. And it would be even better if you could just share this episode with a friend. You know, we're always looking to get more listeners. So if you can share this with a friend, that would be massively appreciated. But of course, no pressure. We just appreciate you being here and you listening to the show. So thank you for being here. Thank you for downloading and thank you for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. I hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode. It's been a pleasure. We'll catch you on the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.